0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> All right. Um, welcome. Uh, we may have some stragglers coming in yet. My name is uh, Frank Mulligan. I'm the chair of this session and director of the uh, uh, President Lincoln's Cottage in washington dc i hesitated because we just changed our name from lincoln's cottage to president lincoln's cottage and i almost got caught up in that and since this is going into a podcast we want all our hearers our listeners to uh... to hear that joining me this morning uh... betty sue flowers uh... she's the one on the far left uh... is director of the lbj presidential library and museum in austin and uh... on my immediate left tom culbertson is the director of the rutherford b hayes presidential center Fremont. And not with us today is Bob Woltz, who's the director of the Truman Little White House in uh, Key West. So uh, he was uh, up until, I think, mid-Tuesday still thinking maybe he could get up here, but they closed the airport. So uh, we have his paper, uh, and we're going to, uh, depending on how our session goes, we may read it, but we we may not. And we may just ask ASLH to have it read later into the record. Uh, so I think maybe that might be the way to go. I see some heads nodding, so with all due respect to, uh, to Mr. Truman and, and, and to Bob for his effort in putting that together. So uh, we'll more or less go chronologically here, and, and we'll start, you know, the issue of race, and f- for us this morning in conversation, we've got a good half hour for, uh, if not longer now, with Bob's absence, to have some good conversation about your, your sites, because we have sites represented here that could well... Uh, add so much to the conversation uh... one of the key words in 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 putting together the, the, um, the little blurb on this was to really look at our sites and libraries and museums as crossroads those locations where the public image or perception uh... of the president's meet with the historical record and i think that's a theme that we will try and uh, bring out as as uh, as we proceed uh... president lincoln's cottage uh... is a relatively new site Really, we just opened in mid-February. It's on the grounds of a a retirement veterans home in D.C., and one of the the coolest things about this site is it is now what it was when Lincoln was there, which is a retirement home for veterans. Then Mexican War veterans, now primarily, uh, well, we have three or four uh, wars still represented with our veterans, and we have 1,200 people living on the grounds. I live on the grounds myself, though as a Canadian, I'm not a veteran but it's a real pleasure and and, um, a great opportunity for me to to further dialogue with uh, with the veterans. And they have immense pride with the heritage of the site. So as you can see from this image, the cottage, quote-unquote, is actually a 34-room country home built by a prominent Washington, D.C. lawyer. It's going to be his signal to the world that he had been a success. But at the end, the government bought the property, and the Lincolns loved this place. The president loved it here. I'm, it is not a Camp David analogy. Uh, they moved out there in the spring uh, and moved back in the fall. I, I'm totally convinced that Lincoln would have stayed there year-round, except his domestic help got cold and, and ornery and wanted to go back to the White House. Uh, but the, the family lived there, though. Lincoln lived there alone um, quite often as Mary was away shopping or whatever she did, traveling with uh, their youngest son, Tad. Uh, uh, one of our themes, too, is, is uh, the importance of this isolated spot in the time of war in 62 and 63 and 64. There was either the perceived Confederate invasion uh, or uh, actual Confederate invasion, and attack on Washington as happened in 1864, just a mile north of here, 22,000 Confederates uh, attacked the Capitol building, and there's the first family living with uh, 100 infantry guarding them out in the middle of nowhere. It's a very bizarre and unbelievable scene, really. So more importantly to today's conversation, Lincoln lived there while he crafted the Emancipation Proclamation, where he wrote the document. Historians love to debate this. I, quite frankly, don't understand it myself. Uh, Like all of us, we write and think as we go through our day and weeks. And Lincoln was no different. So he's definitely thought through his strategy uh, while living here. And it was a very pastoral setting. Here are some of the grounds that, that we've had restored. Uh, this, these are near our visitor center. So clearly, a, uh, you can see that we, we transitioned from the modern into the historic environment. It's our visitor center on the right and the cottage on the left. And so uh, f- for, you know, for Lincoln, this was a place to get away as much as it was a place to meet behind closed doors with friends and foes. Uh, we've welcomed over 20,000 visitors since we opened in mid-February and many of our visitors arrive with preconceived notions as to who Lincoln was, what he accomplished, what his views were, uh, whether he was the single emancipator um, or very much a political operative. Uh, And so our, our mission here is very much to deal with the historical Lincoln and to challenge Uh, public notions of the great man theory and we do that in a guided tour uh, format. Uh, Lincoln was certainly uh, was not an abolitionist uh, and so for many uh, he must have been a racist Uh, and our discussion uh, really over the next 18 months as we head into the bicentennial uh, will only intensify. So our mission then is to bring to the world Lincoln's ideas in an understandable fashion and we don't really sugarcoat um, the messages we try and and present uh, both sides of the arguments uh... our interpretive focus then is on his ideas as we like to say to the staff we furnish the site with lincoln's ideas we're not really about stuff we don't have his stuff anyways and i think that's a blessing for us when we're dealing with uh... issues like uh... so was lincoln a racist and by extension was his emancipation proclamation simply a uh, politically necessary reaction to military political and social reality uh... which you know freed uh, a few enslaved african-americans or was it the significant event of the civil war that changed the that epic struggle from a war uh... to preserve the union to a war for freedom those are the that's the crossroads location that that uh, an issue that we deal with uh... the issue of lincoln's opinion on race essential to our interpretive storyline since the two policies most closely identified with that issue the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment uh, were debated at the cottage behind closed doors with his political operatives uh, obviously while he was staying there. That is really this historic sense of place uh, is central to our uh, desire to convey that into a dialogue on, on race. The historical record is quite clear Lincoln campaigned for the, for the presidency, I think, as we know, pledging to prevent slavery's expansion into the territories, uh, but preserving it where it already existed. We make the point uh, in our uh, presentation and in our galleries uh, that it was by no means certain when the war started that it would become a crusade to uh, end slavery. Yet most, if not all, historians certainly agree that the Emancipation Proclamation did just that. But in late autumn eighteen sixty four and this applies to the historical sense of place lincoln had uh, visitors to the cottage political operatives from the north and from the west and the northwest who traveled to the cottage to meet with him behind closed doors uh... to convince him to drop his support for slavery as a precondition for peace and to drop his commitment to the thirteenth amendment in the republican platform that fall he wavered he thought about backing away from some if not all of those uh, criteria or those uh, preconditions but at the end of the day he proceeded and as we know was reelected. but none of that was preconceived in the summer and early autumn of 1864 uh, uh, his, his uh, chairman of the Republican Party said quite fr- uh, clearly to him Mr. President the tide is setting against us and he was certainly to be defeated uh, in four or five key northern states if he did not drop his condition for uh, uh, ending slavery in the, peace, in the peace discussions and McClellan presumably then would be the next president. So these issues were debated historically at the cottage and so we re- bring those back um, in, in our tour. His, uh, um, you know those issues with our educators here uh, our, our tour really is one of creating this place of conversation where Lincoln himself was uncertain as to his next steps. Emancipation was coming one way or another, and so Lincoln, you know, he might as well get on the bandwagon or he led the charge. Uh, Lincoln certainly was a sage politico. He followed public opinion. He was a master uh, shaper, if I could use that term, of public opinion. And uh, certainly his views on slavery, as we present in our tour, uh, had more to do with constitutional and legal argument than it did with empathy and sympathy for the enslaved. And again, those are issues that we bring forward in discussing race and President Lincoln at the cottage. Uh, Our tours are about the same size as those of us in this room today. So it gives us an opportunity to have a conversation. And if I was your tour guide today in the cottage, we would be sitting in the furniture. I would be sitting down with you and not just talking at you. So that setting really allows us to uh, have a conversation with our visitors uh, about race. And uh, um, clearly it's it's essential for us at the Cottage to stay abreast of current academic views. And they, as you uh, undoubtedly know, there's so many uh, books coming out on Lincoln, especially as we approach the Bicentennial. Uh, Most recently, James Oaks' uh, book, The Radical and the Republican, an analysis of the relationship between Frederick Douglass and and Lincoln, really has brought, again, new insights forward into the abolitionists' political strategy on race and also um, very important views on uh, calculating whether Lincoln was uh, really responding or leading uh, the, uh, the emancipation charge. Lincoln's mantra since the 1850s was, you know, to condemn slavery and slave masters for denying uh, black men and, and women quote-unquote the fruits of their labor. As Lincoln uh, so often put it, it was t- his goal and the Republic's goal was to provide an equal start in the race of life for all. And that's a key, a key theme in our tour and in our uh, educational programming. Douglas, by the way, also announced in 1860 that while well, he hoped for a Republican victory, uh, he could not vote for Lincoln because he was not an abolitionist. Lincoln was not an abolitionist. Uh, historians in recent uh, review of Oakes's book, such as Eric Foner, uh, demonstrates that Lincoln's actions and view his views on rights for the enslaved should not be, quote, be taken as the sole barometer of the politically possible, since abolitionist politicians and former, such as former Ohio Governor Salmon Chase, uh, Lincoln's uh, Treasury Secretary, and Illinois Senator Lyman Trumbull both enjoyed political success uh, but while advocating for full social and political rights for blacks. So this argument is that you know, Lincoln was just a really wise politician and had to sort of rein in his views to get elected. Some uh, academics are taking issue with that particular viewpoint. He could have been successful. Now, whether he could have been successful for national office or not remains to be seen. Uh, So uh, uh, here at at, at the cottage, uh, when we look at issues such as why uh, certain men like uh, William Seward and Chase were passed over for uh, for Lincoln uh, in the nomination of 1860, uh, we look at... at, uh, Issues such as his 1860 Cooper's Union speech, which outlined his views on race and uh, and the Constitution, um, we talk also about Lincoln's views on colonization, and that's a really important element of Lincoln's views on emancipation, gradual, compensated emancipation. Lincoln had all the time in the world for freedom; he would, had no problem with emancipation coming to some states as late uh, as the 20th, early 20th century, if that's what the states wanted to do in a progressive, timely fashion, in his view, timely fashion. His views on colonization were uh, he held on to tenaciously quite, quite long in the process and uh, again academics have looked at that view as uh, evidence of, of, of his racist attitude. The whole thought of having to uh, send offshore millions of Americans who he felt could not live uh, in peace and harmony and prosperity with white Americans. Uh, really, in many ways, shock our visitors when we bring that into our tours. It's that whole issue of what we, what our visitors arrive with, what their preconceived notions of Lincoln are, and what the historical facts shows. Uh, so, in our, as I come to a close here, when we sit in, in places like the library here, which you're looking in at the screen, uh, we look at what Lincoln read as informing his views on race. Uh, and slavery. We we look at the Declaration of Independence uh, and the incongruity that that brought with the the fact that four million African-Americans did not enjoy the natural rights promised in that document. Uh, And so at the cottage we're faced with the challenge of making sense of a complicated historical process, uh, especially that Lincoln's views did change during the war. He did not think in 1864 the same as he thought in 1854 on certain issues. For us, we think that humanizes Lincoln and uh, brings uh, brings his views into into perspective for our visitors. Uh, Sixty years ago, Richard Hofstetter, uh, in a great analysis of of Lincoln's defense of natural rights, pointed out that Lincoln never confronted the question of how blacks were supposed to defend their natural rights promised in the Declaration. Um, Lincoln said, yes, they're entitled to them, but he never really spelled out a process for ensuring uh, the, the enjoyment of those rights. And so, uh, in, in closing then, we, we, we deal with these issues uh, with Lincoln and his views. We try and uh, bring in all sides of our uh, of the debate, but we only have an hour in a guided tour format to do that. It's, uh, it's not always possible, uh, but we certainly look at this location as a place, as a crossroads, uh, both historically, this was a place that Lincoln fled to and enjoyed in order to think through his views. And it's in these walls and these floors that he paced at night, trying to clarify those views on race. So we'll uh, maybe get back to some questions and all of this uh, a, little, uh, a little later on. So we'll move ahead now into uh, haze and Reconstruction, and turn things over to Tom. I'll just leave that thing up there.
1: I'll point out that uh, Rutherford Hayes also lived in the, uh, what was called then the soldier's home each summer during his presidency, usually for uh, three or four months, and uh, we, the, his letters that he wrote at that time usually were headed in handwriting soldier's home or uh, things like that. But uh, since uh, downtown Washington, D.C. was considered to be a malarial swamp at that time, they tended to want to get out of... Uh, the area where the White House was and the cottage was a very nice place and other presidents also used it um, and some people have equated it with Camp David which really isn't a very accurate type of thing because it really was a, a working White House at that point. Uh, I'm going to talk about it so, broader than just Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, you know, is, is not looked upon kindly um, in American history at this point, and I want to talk about what informed the decision to, uh, you know, drive the last nail into the coffin of Reconstruction. Uh, If people today remember anything at all about Rutherford B. Hayes, it's one of four things. He had a funny first name. He didn't serve alcohol in the White House. Uh, He stole the election of 1876, which the election of 2000 certainly brought everybody out of the woodwork at that point. uh, Or he ended Reconstruction by pulling the troops out of the South. Uh, I'm only going to deal with the last one, but he did have a funny name. And should Barack Obama become elected, he can join the club with Millard Fillmore and Rutherford Hayes. If only Mitt Romney had been nominated, we could have been assured of another another member of the Funny name Society. so what in Rutherford Hayes' pre-presidential years are pertinent to a discussion of race? Well, he, when he was an attorney in Cincinnati in the 1850s, he defended runaway slaves, um, sometimes with Salmon P. Chase and other better-known lawyer politicians. He usually did the, the grunt work and the, and the actual time before the jury, whereas a lot of the others often lent their name. Um, or uh, so, but he did believe in in the cause. When the war broke out in 1861, he was 38 years old, had a thriving law career, was uh, had been the city solicitor of Cincinnati, and had a loving wife, three sons. At age 38, probably could have ducked the war if he'd really wanted to, but he made a statement that he'd rather be killed in war than to have uh, have not served, and. Uh, one of his motivations in joining the military was to um, end slavery in addition to punishing the South and bringing them back into the Union. Um, He was, um, he spent four years on the field of battle with the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry where he rose from the rank of Major to uh, Brevet Major General. He was wounded five times, had horses shot out from under him, but he was actually a a good politician, leader. In 1864, he was nominated to run for Congress from Cincinnati. He refused to go out and uh, and campaign, but was elected anyway. And uh, didn't take his seat until 1865. And Congress didn't convene until December of 1865. But when he uh, when the war ended, uh, he was he was certainly happy to be out of that. When he got into Congress in 1865, he became uh, a backbench member of the Radical Republicans. He didn't get up and make great speeches, but he voted along with the Radical Republicans and uh, voted for the Reconstruction Acts. In 1867, he sought a graceful way to get out of being a congressman because he hated being, as he said, an errand boy to the uh, uh, citizens of Cincinnati and was offered a chance to run for governor of Ohio in 1867. Uh, When he ran he uh, he tied his campaign to an amendment to the Ohio Constitution which would allow blacks to vote in state elections. Hayes won the election by about 2,000 votes but the amendment failed by over 50,000 votes and uh, I think it was 1923 before Ohio straightened out its Constitution and allowed blacks technically to vote in state elections, same year they allowed women. Um, So you might ask, uh, how does a person with uh, that kind of a background and track record on race get to be the person who ended Reconstruction? Well, Eric Foner in his recent book, Forever Free, sums it up best. He says, Rutherford B. Hayes, ordered federal troops to withdraw from positions at the state houses of Louisiana and South Carolina, where they've been protecting Republican claimants to the governorship. This action, subsequently described in most, by most historians inaccurately as withdrawing all of the federal troops from the South, marked the effective end of Reconstruction. And then he goes on to say, Hayes's policy was not a sudden or unexpected repudiation of Reconstruction. Rather, it was a culmination of a retreat, that had gathered force since Ulysses Grant's re-election in 1873. So, what exactly happened to Reconstruction? Well, I'll give you the sort of the USA Today quick version of Reconstruction. We all know that Andrew Johnson took Abraham Lincoln's place, was inaugurated in April of 1865. Congress did not meet until December of 1865. In the meantime, Johnson's Reconstruction policy was basically to welcome the former states back in, assuming that enough people, would, former Confederates, would sign a pledge saying that they were loyal members. And so, in the former Confederate states, they began to enact black codes, uh, essentially re-enslaving the freed uh, black people in the South. When Congress returned in December of 1865, they went at it with President Johnson, began to pass a series of acts to try to ensure the equality of blacks in the South. Radical Republicans passed the Reconstruction Act of 1867, which placed the ten Confederate states under military rule, excluded former Confederates from voting and holding public office and from there um, Republican administrations were elected in the South, governors and um, legislatures. In the history books, you know, you you see that uh, the the whole bit of um, sorry about that, uh, of talking about the uh, the so-called carpetbaggers and um, blacks who were elected, disparaging their abilities, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the period of the Republican rule in the South was very brief. The uh, When the Republican administrations were formed in the South, they were elected largely by a black electorate since the former uh, combatants had been excluded. In 1868, when Ulysses Grant was elected to the presidency, it was largely, I mean, his plurality of victory was guaranteed by the black vote. The, the, uh, Grant lost the white vote if you excluded uh, the blacks. So bitter whites in the South resorted to violence particularly on election days, and Ulysses Grant used his authority to use the federal troops and the federal marshals to try to, uh, particularly on election days, uphold the rights of blacks in the South. When violence was not working and the Ku Klux Klan Act was passed and all those sorts of things, the former Confederates changed tactics. They worked within the system. The legislation, the Amnesty Act of 1872, was signed by Ulysses Grant. It allowed all but about 500 of the former Confederate leaders to be able to vote and hold office. So over the next few years Democrats ended up taking back the governorships and the state houses And by 1873, all but four of the states of the South were back in Democratic hands. By 1876, when Samuel Tilden and Rutherford Hayes ran only South Carolina and Louisiana, were still in the Republican column with Republican governors. And they were being held in place by about 600 federal troops. As an aside, when you talk about federal troops being in the South, um, in 1865, October of 1865, there were 186,000 federal troops in the South. In October of 1868, there were 17,657, so 10% of what there had been just three years earlier. By the time of the election of 1876, there were 6,011 federal soldiers in the former Confederate States, 3,000 of which were in Texas, mainly doing border guard uh, duty. The whole army was woefully understaffed, and most of them were out in the West dealing with the Indians. Remember that Custer was killed in June of 1876 the same month that Samuel Tilden and Rutherford Hayes were nominated to run in the election of 1876. So what caused the failure of Reconstruction? Well, racism, the economy, and fatigue. Racism is not, was not confined just to the South. In the 21st century, we get this, this, these grand ideas that the Civil War was fought by noble northerners who wanted to go down there and free the slaves and have everybody live happily ever after. Um, That wasn't the case. People in the north were as racist as people in the south. They wanted slavery to be over, but of course there are people in New England who can say that they were uh, not racist, but uh, the states in general... You know, they didn't want blacks making a mass exodus to the north, and it was it was pretty ugly. You know, when you talk about you know in the, in the current war over in Iraq, we've got the no end game. well, the Civil War also had no end game that uh, you, which leads us into the the economy. You now have four million freed slaves. What are you going to do with them? Uh, The South thought the solution was to essentially re-enslave them. The North thought, well, it's a Southern problem. Uh, When the Depression of 1873 happened, they certainly didn't want blacks moving north and competing for jobs. The Depression of 1873 was probably one of the worst depressions in American history. Northerners didn't want their money wasted supporting federal troops in the South. And so the Republican majority in the House was no longer available as of 1874. Democrats took control of the U.S. House of Representatives, partly because Southerners were being elected to the House and partly because of the terrible economy. Republicans lost their seats in the House of Representatives and the Senate was losing its majority. And then there was fatigue. Northerners were tired of hearing about what they considered to be a southern problem and white southerners did a great job of PR during the reconstruction period. Every misstep by a black legislator or a so-called carpetbagger was broadcast throughout the union in newspaper form. They didn't have radio and TV at that time. But they constantly said that you know, the, the blacks and the carpetbaggers were mismanaging the South, and if only the good Confederates, former Confederates were put back in, that everything would be all better. And people in the North ate that up. So by 1874, 1875 elections, Ulysses Grant decided that he didn't have the mandate to use federal troops to... Monitor the polling places and the former or the liberal Republicans from 1872 had, had kind of pushed him to that conclusion and it became the policy of part of the Republican Party to seek another way of dealing with the South When Rutherford Hayes took office in March of 1877, he extracted promises from the incoming Democratic governors of South Carolina and Louisiana that they would uphold the rights of all citizens, including blacks, and then in April withdrew the troops to their barracks in Louisiana and South Carolina, putting an end to Reconstruction. Had Samuel Tilden been awarded the presidency by the uh, Electoral Commission, he certainly would not have waited until April to have installed the Democratic governors of South Carolina and Louisiana. Uh, Hayes's allies thought that a less computational approach to Reconstruction would put together a coalition in the South of a Republican Party made up of blacks and a better element of whites in the South. Well that never happened. Whites galvanized behind the Democratic Party and what remained of the Republican Party was blacks who managed to make it to the polling place and their numbers voting diminished. Hayes realized the strategy was a failure very quickly and but it was too late to reverse the course. The only successes that he managed to have was in thwarting Democratic attempts at uh, they attempted to put riders on appropriation bills for the military to exclude federal marshals from being able to uh, enforce rules at the polling places. Hayes vetoed four measures that had these riders on them. Eventually, they passed clean bills without the riders, and, uh, but that's about the only victories that Hayes managed to do. Conditions gradually grew worse for blacks in the South. They were excluded from the polling place. More and more Jim Crow laws were started started to be passed in the 1890s, ten years after Hayes left office. When Plessy v. Ferguson allowed, uh, you know, I mean, essentially institutionalized it. In his retirement years, Hayes went back to Fremont and worked um, for. Some causes, including prison reform, education of blacks and Indians, worked uh, or was a member of the Peabody and Slater Funds, which funded uh, education for blacks. Some people would say that was his act of atonement for being a lousy president and having, uh, you know, dealt with Reconstruction badly. He would be disappointed that it took another 100 years before the second Reconstruction happened in the 1950s and 60s and was much more successful. And I will leave it at that and hope that there are questions later. Thank you.
0: I'm going to move into the uh, 20th century with some um, audio tapes, which are fascinating. Just uh, bear with us while we get this.
2: okay i 'm told that this will this doesn 't have anything to do with audio. Um, it has to do with the tape, so if this is on, then the tape will pick it up, but i don 't have to stay behind here. Um, I was told I had ten minutes to talk about LBJ and race. Uh, books have been written about LBJ and the civil rights, LBJ and voting rights, lbj and martin luther king and so um, and i 'm so glad you included LbJ because you just can 't not include him. So what I decided to do was to focus on one aspect of this assignment uh, Frank gave me, which is the difficulty, the difficulty of these uh, decision-making situations in presidential lives. Um, I I have a kind of mission about that because uh, over the years when I was teaching, I noticed that students had a peculiar kind of superiority over our ancestors who, who did difficult things. Uh, Thomas Jefferson looked so um, beneath them morally. Uh, Abraham Lincoln um, really wasn't an emancipation person, so um, there's a kind of sense of superiority among students. It's so obvious that blacks are equal. Why did it take them so long to do anything? So I, I thought, you know, one of the things we when we think about decisions and difficulty, um, we don't have a felt sense of the times, and any museum or something you might put on the web, how do you give students or young people particularly who didn't live through it, as some of us did, the civil rights era, how do you give them a felt sense of what the difficulty was at the time? So um, part of what I want to show you here and and play some tapes is intended to give um, students and others the experience of difficulty. So let me start by saying if you're thinking about voting rights, for example. Um, how, would you do, how would you do it? Johnson considered four different strategies. Um, you know, there's not only the historical context of the difficulty, uh, which has to do with the situation in the South. Uh, Southerners got around this um, polling place issue because they would let blacks into polling places. That kept the federal marshal. But once they were in, couldn't vote because they couldn't guess how many pennies were in a jar. Uh, when you tell students that, they just can't believe it. Or they couldn't recite the Constitution letter perfect, or the prologue to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, or some other absurd um, kind of test. So there was the historical, there was the, um, Johnson thinking about what to do um, politically and strategically considered, well, what if we um, just sue the states, take them to court, and all the many years up to the Supreme Court? That's a very risky thing because of all the time it takes. Uh, he could be out of office by the time these, and there are dozens of ways to make things take a long time. Uh, there was a constitutional amendment to assure voting rights. Um, given the, how most of the states felt, that was a non starter in the South, so you couldn't go that way. We have some fascinating dis- uh, discussions of him talking with Katzenbach as Attorney General about well, what if we um, tried um, appointing, federalizing the postmasters? and having the which were and already federal employees having the postmasters be the election people so if they didn't let blacks vote you just fire the postmaster and you could do that from a federal level even in a southern state which is a kind of clever strategy but um, quite a difficult one to make popular and finally he settled on passing a law Um, and to do that he needed the help of the senate minority leader Everett Dirksen so it's it's no accident that the first pen he gave when he signed the Voting Rights Act Was to Everett Dirksen, not to Martin Luther King, who was there by his side. But Everett Dirksen. And he, if I have time, I want to play you a little, fifty-nine-second clip where he's talking to Dirksen, saying, you know, trying to, to get him to get on his side by saying, you're from the land of Lincoln. Uh, you know, do you want to be remembered as a? I will give you all the credit. The man from Lincoln is actually helping us pass the. And it's very interesting. One of the best timelines on civil rights you can find on the Dirksen website. Although, early on, it has interesting little bits to it when, when they go through, like, January 4th. This is all 1965. Um, Dirksen laid out the legislative agenda for his co- uh, constituents in television broadcast. They mention the things he lays out. Not a word about voting rights. The next entry. Barely a word about civil rights. So the first part of this uh, timeline points out there was nothing about civil rights. And then Johnson got into the picture, and um, so that's, that's what happened. Well. Um, what we've done with the 12 presidential libraries um, is try to make available to students the experience that historians have when they go into archives and come away with a sense of the times that allows them to understand what the difficulties were. So we put, tried to put original exhibits and archives on a website called the Presidential Timeline, if you Google that'll it be the first thing that, that pops up. And um, I want to go quickly through the opening of that, just to give you a sense of the timeline, but get to a day in the life of Johnson during which he was making the kinds of decisions that are really difficult um, and being faced with these in a context which most students do not get. Most students read history books. They study history through books. And the books tell a story. If it's civil rights, that's all that's going on. Uh, If it's about the Vietnam War, there's a, you know, a paragraph or a page about the Vietnam War. It's a story, very, but actually, it's a blooming, buzzing confusion in real life because of the things are going on at the same time. So I wanna show you a day in the life of Johnson and play a couple of the tapes from that day and then play this little clip from, uh, from Dirksen um, in the, uh, quick, quickly as quickly as I can. Let me just talk a little bit about the timeline. Um, I'm delighted to welcome the, the head of Presidential Libraries here, Sharon Fawcett. And also the NEH has been supporting us in teacher workshops that we're really starting to gear up um, in the Department of Education. And um, Nancy Rogers was formerly the vice chair of NEH for many years, so um, I'm delighted that she's here too. Um, So let me just talk a little bit. Uh, The timeline has um, themes, a gallery, a, a special part for educators, and each of the presidents of the 20th century, each of the presidents who has a presidential library is on it. Um, here's the timeline itself and if this is a PowerPoint not because I never trust that you can actually access the web from any presentation place. so so this is not real but this is a screenshot so you would double click say on Johnson and the highlighted part would be the presidency and then you could go into the early life and career the presidency the post presidency and here's what the timeline when you double click on it looks like Um, you've got here, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and below it explains it, where there's a cross in the, in the dots, and, and I think we have a cross on that now, there's an exhibit related to it with original archives. Um, and if you look on the bottom part, I don't know if it shows up so well on the screen, this bottom part is a theme line, and it varies depending on what you click on. Uh, this particular one is Other Presidents. So you can see that Bill Clinton graduates from Hot Springs High School, uh, the same May that the Great Society speech was made. And it's, it's the timeline of other presidents. Here is um, a civil rights movement timeline. So you can see what's going on in other aspects of the presidency and what's happening, the Freedom Summer um, in the civil rights. And then this is just uh, presidential approval ratings. Note that at the time of the Great Society, at the time of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Johnson's presidential approval rating was 74%. That helps. That helps a lot, not to mention a majority congress. Now, let me go through quickly. This is what a, a, just an exhibit looks like. Um, you can call up all the, uh, for example, all the archives that have to do with Pearl Harbor are just the pictures. Here is the first page of the daily Li- diary of one day in the life of President Johnson that is connected to civil rights. On this day, Johnson, first of all, is trying to persuade congress to pass the poverty bill before they recess. Secondly, he gets a call from McNamara, which I'll play for you, which talks about the Gulf of Tonkin, the second attack on the Gulf of Tonkin. And third, he gets a call from the FBI that the bodies of the three slain civil rights workers in Mississippi have been found. Now, this is on a day that looks like this. This is the Daily Diary. Just, this is an appointment diary of the people coming to see him on this day Um, This is. I'm just taking out so I can click on some of these to play a couple of these tapes to give you a sense of the experience. You will hear in the first, uh, behind the scenes, when I first click on them, you'll hear um, not very clearly because you'll hear a background of noise and you can hear Johnson haranguing. And then the telephone comes on because these are telephone tapes, not room tapes like Nixon. So the haranguing, you can hear him in one point saying, haranguing about the poverty bill We've got to pass this poverty bill. I'm not for handouts. Um, we've given boys in South America uh, work and why can't we give boys in our own country jobs? And he's you know, he's hammering that home. Um, so let me play the first where McNamara calls because it gives you a sense of the difficulty of managing a civil rights, a movement that's about to get out of uh, control as some people thought, at the same time that something else is going on in the other side of the world. So. Let me just play a couple of these. So you can't understand this because this is the background. right here under
3: Not it to it that check. Hello? Secretary I know. know. And we just had word by telephone from Admiral Sharp that the uh, destroyer is under torpedo attack. I think I might get uh, Dean and Mac Bunny has come over here, and we'll go over these retaliatory actions. And then we ought to. I sure think you all agree with that, yeah. And uh, I've got a category here, I'll call them to them. What are these torpedoes telling from? Well, we don't know. Presumably from these unidentified craft that I mentioned to you a moment ago, we thought that the unidentified craft might include one, uh, one PT boat, which has torpedo capability, and two SWAT boats, which we don't credit with torpedo capability, although they may have it. What are these planes are going around while they've been attacked? Well, presumably the planes are attacking the... Ships. We don't have any uh, word from, from Sharp on that. The planes would be in the area at the present time, all all eight of them. Okay, now you get them over there, and you come over here and say, that that. Yeah.
2: Now, this next one I'll play. Um, in the background, you will hear the cabinet meeting about the Gulf of Tonkin while he gets the call about the civil rights workers.
3: Well, if we can. will get to the Yes, sir. Are you getting coach? Mr. Loach, talk to Walter. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> call the yeah call no, uh, Mr. President yeah uh, Mr. Hoover I want to call you sir immediately and tell you that the FBI has uh, found three bodies six miles southwest of Philadelphia Mississippi. the six miles west of where the civil rights workers were last seen on the night of June 21st a uh, search party of agents to uh, turn up the bodies of about 15 minutes ago while they were digging in the woods and underbrush uh, several hundred yards off Route 21 in that area. We're going to get a partner there right away, sir, and uh, we're going to move these bodies into Jackson, Mississippi, where we hope they can be identified. We have not identified them as yet as the three missing men, but we have every reason to believe that they are the three missing men. They were under, they were at the site of a dam that had been constructed uh, near Philadelphia, Mississippi. When are you going to make the announcement? Within 10 minutes, sir, if it's all right with you. Right. How are you going to make you Where? from there. I plan to make it from Washington here, sir. Right. This indicates the FBI has uh, found three bodies. It's not identifying them. Okay, if you can hold it about 15 minutes, I'll go to notify these families. Well, Mr. President, uh, the only uh, thing I'd suggest you not have there is if you wish to do that prior to the time that they're identified. We think they're the ones, but uh, well, I think we can tell them that we, we don't know, but we found them, and that, that kind of eases it a little bit. Yes, sir. Yes. All right, sir. So I'll wait until I you. Yeah, I'll
2: give right back to you. Very good, sir. So he's calling the families at the same time he's trying to do the Gulf of Tonkin, and he's being told put off the – but meanwhile, he's got to get hold of Goldwater, who's running against him, because uh, courtesy demands that before you do strikes, you know, you let the opponent know about this. Goldwater's off on a lake somewhere. He can't get a hold of him. The end of the day, at midnight, he gets a call from Harriman about the party, the the Democratic Party politics, which he's also having to worry about because the election. So there's all kinds of stuff going on on that same day. The last thing I'll play, because I do want to save a little time for discussion, um, is what happens at 843, a little conversation when Lady Bird calls, and that's... that's uh, I'll end with that. If you have time, I'll play the Dirksen later. Yes, uh, yes but Yes,
3: darling. What's your name? I just wanted to see you whenever you were all
1: alone. Just
3: merely right. to tell you I loved you, that's all. I you the rest was still there? No, they left at 3.30 this afternoon, dear. No, I didn't like to tell you Because I guess they just, I figured you just didn't have a moment. Well, any other news? No. And <laughs> but honey, no. I'll bring anybody who's a bachelor who wants to eat or who would otherwise be doing about someone to a real mate with you. Will you?
2: Okay. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we have five minutes for some discussion, so I, I didn't want to.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Okay, well, let me play two other things, and if,
2: if, if I can be indulged. I, you know, I'm doing this because it seems to me the, the really difficult thing is why don't they just obviously give everybody the equal right to vote. There's so much, the way things happen have to do with the other things in the context. And to understand the context is to understand history in a way that's different from a story that's just written. Okay, the two other things I'll play then. I'm, I, I'm hurrying more than I need to, I guess, here. But I'll play two other things. I'll play two other, other things, things for the tape. Uh, one is the brief little conversation, one of many, but a brief little conversation with Dirksen. And then I want to play something really special, and this will be the last thing I brought. This comes from a really horrible videotape, which I brought too, but it's just worthless to look at, except that you can see how uh, Johnson is, that I play every year to the incoming LBJ school students uh, who are right next door to the library. And the reason I do is, it's Johnson talking to the first class of students coming in. It's a month before he dies. And he's talking about off the cuff, talking about uh, what he's done, proud of, or what, and he, he's kind of meandering, really. But he starts, he gives one anecdote of what changed his mind about civil rights. It's a kind of, the point about that Lincoln changed. Um, and okay, after the fact, you can make up all kinds of stories about why you did what. But this is a very telling story. As you listen to the story, you notice he is not politically correct in how he tells the story. He's still a product of his times. So students listening to this can cringe, but at the same time see a man in the process of coming, coming to understand something about the life of African-Americans in the South and making it his job even though, um, as he told Bill Moyers, we'll lose the South for a generation. He was wrong. It's been more than a generation to the, to the party. He, he still made that decision. And this is a personal story about one of his helpers bringing a dog back to Texas. So let me play first. You can hear him talk to Dirksen, and then you'll hear him um, talk to um, the students um, about why he did what he did when it came to civil rights. And it's December 1972, right? and he died um, in January of 73.
4: You've got to, that's exactly right. That's what you got to do. you got to take care of your own people and you're doing that. And I saw the other day uh, and we want this to be a Democratic bill. We want it to be an American bill. And if these schools are out, if they're coming out at the end of this month. If they're out and we haven't got a bill, we're in hell of shape. We're going to be in trouble anyway. But, uh, I saw your exhibit to World Fair, and It said the land of Lincoln. So you're worthy of the land of Lincoln. And that man from Illinois is going to to pass the bill, and i'll see if you get proper attention and credit uh, thanks.
2: Bye. <laughs> so you can see that okay and then here's lbj to the to the students
4: could you believe that hundred years ago, and Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and it's still just a proclamation It's not a fact. And I wonder if we in an era could have been a fact today than we were ten years ago. I think so. And I wonder why, and how that came about. Well, it might amaze you, but I think a black uh, boy who on a finished elementary school. I was in the capital politics known as a porter who drove my car back and forth to Texas after each session Congress had more to do with bringing about a semblance of equal justice in this country and any president to, from Lincoln to Johnson. I, re- I recounted my book, but it might be interesting to you to know that. We had to come back to Texas every year if the congressional session ended. And as plane schedules got better, well, I Ms. Johnson and I would fly back to Texas with the children. And it would be up to the black man in the workforce to drive our car and bring the cook and all the kitchen utensils and the baby was necessary purposes, etc. And one day he came in <coughs> one evening after I finished the hectic session of the Senate and said, Senator, I was leaving in the morning about daylight. He said, Do you got any other thing you want to tell me? And I said, Anything else you want to say? And I said, Well, are you going to take Beagle, with dog? And he said, Yes, yes. He said, do, do I have to take Beagle? And I said, Well, of course. Beagle's a member of the family. We can't leave him here all summer when we're in Texas. Why? Why don't you want to don't you want to take Beagle with you? He said, yes, sir, I, I guess, so." dejectedly, he went back to the kitchen where he'd been washing dishes. And I said, Gene, come tell me why you don't want to take Beagle. He said, well, I said, and, uh, and these are his words, a Negro has enough trouble getting through the South without a damn dog. <laughs> my consciousness, the terrible injustice that we whites have perpetrated in a nation where men are supposed to be created for almost two two centuries. He went elaborated some. He said, uh, we drive all day but when we want to go to the bathroom just like y'all do we have to go out a side road and our women have to get behind a tree because we can't go in the filling station like you do. We get hungry and we got to eat just like you do. But we have to go across the tracks to the grocery store and get some cheese and crackers because we can't go in a cafe. Or if some hamburger stand we take a chance on being insulted, try to get by and we have to go around to the back, wait till everybody else is served, <coughs> something to eat. So we drive hard all day long, comes 10, 11 o'clock, Helen and I want to go to sleep we said, we can't go in a motel or a hotel. We have to drive across the track and find some boating house way down there where they'll take us in for the night because we we're not allowed in a hotel. And said, you're not allowed in any place, almost even across the tracks. you got a damn dog you got to take. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was chagrined at my insensitivity to my fellow man. And uh, out of that conversation, uh, when I have got to be president, uh, I urged in my first uh, statement that we start on a course of equal justice for fellow men a fellow man. Uh, And the first course essential to
2: providing that justice was the simple right to permit him to vote. So I can't remember what he did to the dog. I think he probably took I think he probably had to take (laughs) the dog across the the south. I think Jane and Helen took the dog. I think they did. Yeah. But but he did. He said then when he did have the power he he uh, did something
0: bad and it uh, did quite a few things you can sit down,
2: we'll share
0: this yeah you. thank you very much Betty Sue. Um, so we have we have some time now to uh, have some conversations and questions and share some ideas uh, the way we want to do this is if you'd like to um, participate here we'll you'll use the mic and if it's a question direct a question and we'll answer it accordingly or just share your own experiences with presidents and race. So. And if you, I think it'd probably be best to identify yourselves. I think if they would want us to just say who, who you are and where you
5: work. Um, I'm, I'm Peter Eisenstadt. I'm an independent historian. Um, for, I, I was distressed, by the way, just a few weeks ago at the Democratic Convention that, um, which I think coincided with the 100th anniversary of Johnson's birth, and I guess there was a decision I read from Obama himself, not to emphasize or call attention to the 100th anniversary during prime time for various reasons, which I thought was unfortunate. I guess my, my question is, and the stuff everybody presented is fascinating, I find that historical contextualization can be a double-edged sword. Um, that you can provide more complexity and understanding. And then you hear the other side of it about people like Jefferson or Lincoln. Well, you know, everybody was a slave owner back then. So why should we get upset about this? It's sort of a history. That there's a way in which looking at historical context can lead to sort of an easy sort of exculpation of people. And and you raise this in terms of Lincoln. You could look at the complexities of Lincoln's position and then people say, well, Lincoln actually could have been more bold or, you know, in terms of to a more, been abolitionist earlier than he was. So I think historical, I mean, I mean, there always are choices, it seems to me. And what's important to me is keeping a sense of all of the choices that actors had and not just sort of, as you sometimes can see in museums about presidential exhibits, sort of leading the um, viewer to think that the the decision that the president made was the right one. He took all the forces into account, and he came up with sort of the best compromise.
2: Right, right. Uh, Sometimes the tendency, if you have to simplify a story, is to make a civil religion out of uh, the worshipping the great men or whatever. So I would, since I've raised this, i have taking the liberty of responding. Um, I, I do agree with you. I think it is you can say everyone had slaves, so why get upset? But if you say everyone had slaves and some got upset and here's, here were the obstacles that they attempted to overcome with more or less courage and more or less success. So I agree with you. It's a very complex story, but not one that should make us feel in our uh, moral dimension superior to our ancestors, even though our society, in, in a way, has a superior frame, I believe. Um, I don't think that um, the kind of dismissive, well, they, they just didn't see the light, um, is useful to understanding how difficult they really, the difficult decisions they really had to make
1: well we can present people with uh, you know the the uh, the context of the time uh, but we don't have to agree with them that they made the right decision and so uh, all that we can do in museums and archives is put it out there and say well here are the things that they considered here's the decision that they made but you know we don't then say and they made the right decision or they made the wrong decision. You got to kind of got to draw your own conclusions there, and what happened afterwards, you can't change. So. Someone else just
3: grab
5: the mic there. I'm um, I'm I'm Tom Price from the the James Cape Hoke Um A question for Frank. You had mentioned since February, I have about twenty thousand people who have come through your site, which is outstanding. Um, as early on as it is, are you able to track how many are, are African-American uh, visitors that come to your site and how much feedback are you getting from from your visitation in terms of your interpretation of Lincoln and his ideas on slavery?
0: Uh, no, we, to answer your first question, we're not tracking uh, demographics and that um, in, 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 as far as you know, race goes. Or uh, We do though uh... we discussed this in an earlier session today on on uh, dialogue uh... we capture email addresses because we sell most of our tickets online we have email addresses and by the time our visitors by the time you get home from visiting president lincoln's cottage your inbox you have a letter from me thanking you for visiting us that day uh... with a survey and asking you to help us make our message better and share your thoughts with us so we have that vehicle for evaluation which is very useful and as we said earlier today i I try and you know take tours as regularly just because we're still trying to improve it we're, we're brand new and an amazing number of people come up to the tour guides after the tour and say this is different what you're doing here uh, you don't idolize Lincoln uh, and we appreciate that uh, I didn't know these other perspectives, so you know uh, we're doing some things right, we've got a long way to go. And gentlemen in the back, Tom, if you could pass it but, oh he's got it.
3: Thank you. Uh, John Fleming, the uh, director emeritus of the Cincinnati Museum Center. Um, and, I, and my question is to you, uh, Frank Milligan. Um, what is your assessment of the what's considered to be the controversial uh, book by, on Lincoln by Lerone Bennett?
0: Yeah, well, we uh, in my in my talk I mentioned a couple of academic books, and we do, we don't um, forced into glory is the book you're referring to. Uh, we don't we don't really mention specific histories or historians or perspectives in that in that regard. Uh, we, we try and show a range uh, of opinion, and certainly Dr. Bennett is on one. You know, perhaps one side of the of the spectrum, and the great man theory is on the other. So, specifically to your question, we don't deal with uh, that perspective. We do talk about self emancipation. We do talk about the military uh, constraints that Lincoln worked within. Um, that in many ways he was forced. In many ways he was forced uh, to proceed with emancipation, uh, and in certain. Uh, Certain uh, components of it, like colonization, he was clearly divorced from the mainstream. Uh, so that's that's my best shot at, at that specific question. Other other comments? I have
2: a question. I, I thought, um, to you, Frank, I, I thought he was um, he understood colonization. He thought that the African Americans would like it, and was kind of shocked when. Uh, he discovered that they didn't, and changed his mind pretty quickly after having a meeting with them.
0: Uh, that's sort of right. <laughs> uh, Lincoln certainly uh, believed it was best for all uh, that that uh, blacks would settle in their own country, in their own geographic environment, in industries that were best suited to their um, um, to them. Uh, and so in that regard he thought it was going to be easier for blacks as well as for whites uh, and that the two as he said would never mix. So why try and force it? Uh, It's interesting, uh, some cabinet members and certainly John Hay, some of his personal secretaries were just you know they were just freaking out that that Lincoln was holding on to this opinion so late in the game. Uh, And in our tours we talk about that with emancipation where Lincoln you know, he kind of thought he understood the South, and you know, he, he he was wrong when he he really didn't think a war would come. He thought that things could be worked out ahead of time. He was wrong when he went to the border states and tried to pitch a, a form of slow, progressive emancipation that would take time, but, you know, I'm a southerner like you folks, I'm a Kentuckian, I know the way you think. Well <laughs> he said, no you don't, and we're not agreeing with your idea. Three times he asked them, three times they said no. So uh, I think your point's well taken, that he felt he understood certain things uh, that he clearly was wrong on. Um, and uh, that's important for us, we think, to, um, make, to make those points with our visitors. Other thoughts? I've got a bit more time. If not, uh, with all due respect, uh, I think, to to Harry Truman, uh, if there is someone who came specifically to hear Bob's talk, uh, we do have an extra printed copy of his remarks. And if you would leave me your email address, I will send you his written remarks, uh, which I'm sure he'll be fine with. And again, I apologize uh, um, for him not being here. Uh, I'm sure you understand that. he said, "If I can make it, I've got to drive 160 miles over 30 bridges to get to Miami to fly up there. So I don't think that's going to happen." And I want to thank uh, both our panelists, uh, Tom and Betty Sue. I was I was worried that Betty Sue too may get may get caught down in, in Texas. We certainly wish you the best heading home. That Austin is, uh, and the rest of Texas is uh, uh, survives this uh, this well. So. Thank you all for coming, and I guess uh, follow the, the AASLH website, and this will be available as a podcast if you if you're interested in that. So thanks thanks for being here.